Let's take our Bibles for our Bible study. We're headed to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, that's an easy one to find. Just go to the back of your Bible. We're in chapter 20, and we're dealing with, if you're just joining with us, a series that's entitled, What Does the Future Hold? We're just going through step by step. Now, this morning reminds me of a situation just a couple of weeks ago with my granddaughter. I kind of feel like she did. Do you remember two weeks ago on Mother's Day, Pastor Art had found a really cute video that we showed you? One of them was things moms don't say. Do you remember that at all? Different things like moms don't say, you know, you can come wake me up at any time of the night. You know, things mom don't say is, you know, take out your cell phones at the meal. Well, we're at supper time with them, and I said, hey, they, they had happened to be here visiting that day, uh, my daughter, her husband, and their, grand, and their kids, and they said, why don't we add to that? Let's think if we can think of other things mom don't say. And so the kids and we started coming up, moms don't say, go ahead, you know, talk with your mouth full of food. You know, go ahead, chew with your mouth wide open. Go ahead, stay up as late as you want. You know, go ahead, interrupt me anytime you want. So we were having fun with it. And all of a sudden, granddaughter got serious and looked at her mom, looked at her dad, looked at me. And I said, do you have one? She says, I have a really good one. But she looked at her mom, and we said, go ahead, you can say it. Things that mothers don't say. Yes. (laughs) Our reaction was the same as yours. We just burst out laughing. But she was apprehensive to say that at first. And I understand, because she wasn't sure of the reaction. I feel that way about this passage. This message from Revelation 20 is about a topic that I'm apprehensive how you're going to react. Yet I, and in a way, I don't care because it's from the Word of God. But yet I'm still concerned how somebody might react. It's the great white throne judgment is the topic. The passage gives us some details about that event. And to help understand, let's just do a little bit of review. There's coming a time very close in the future. We don't know when. It could be days, could be years, it could be millennia, centuries. We don't know. Sure feels like it's going to be any time soon. Jesus Christ is going to come and take away the believers, and then there's going to begin a period of seven years of the worst time of human history. It's called the tribulation, the great tribulation. And there's all kinds of judgments that take place. There's all kinds of evil. This is when the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, all those things come into place. At the end of those seven years, right about when the world is ready to destroy themselves, Jesus Christ will literally come from heaven and he'll take over planet earth and he'll set up a kingdom where he will rule here on earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. During that thousand years, people will be being born, and they have to make a choice. Do we become believers in Christ? They have to obey him, because it'll be ruled with a rod of iron. He'll rule with a rod of iron. But whether or not those people born in that time period will want him to be their future king forever and ever, they have to decide that. So at the end of the thousand years, what's going to happen is Satan is going to be released from a prison that he's been bound in, the bottomless pit for those thousand years, and he's going to start proposing to many of those people born during that time period that they would be better off getting rid of Jesus and letting him rule and reign. And there will be a vast number as the sands of the sea that are going to follow Satan. And they'll revolt against Jesus Christ. They'll come with an army, literally, to, uh, to defeat Jesus at Jerusalem. It'll be a short-lived battle. It's just going to be over in a matter of seconds when Jesus speaks about a word. And then what happens is Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire, eternal hell. That's where Antichrist and the false prophet have been for the last thousand years. This will be where Satan's final domain is. But at the end of all that, at the end of the rebellion, at the end of judgment of Satan, there is going to be the great white throne judgment talked about in this passage. We're in verse 11, and just follow along as I read, and then I'm going to explain things. I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so here we have this event, and for us to be able to dissect it, Let's just do it in this this fashion. Let's talk about who the judge is, who are the judged, and what about the judgment. 
So picking on the judge, let's just take that first of all. Who is the judge? There's a lot of different discussion because in the Bible it talks sometimes that says that we're going to be judging. The apostles will be judging. But at this moment, at this time, who is the judge? Well, the Bible is going to give us somewhat of a description. And it gives us details. It talks about a throne, which clearly indicates to you and me somebody in authority, somebody to whom there's going to be accountability. It talks about it being great in size and majesty. It talks about being white, righteousness, holiness, brilliance. Now, putting that together with the other mentions in the book of Revelation, 50 times God is seen on a throne. And so you and I kind of look at this and say, well, that seems like a no-brainer. But the person on the throne is going to be so majestic, so mighty, that the heavens and the earth will flee away. I think this is the text that complements Second Peter and describes what happens to planet earth in the future. At the end of the millennium, right at this time of the great white throne. It says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the work shall be burned up. The next verse goes on and says, Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved. That is, since everything here on the planet, things that we consider important, you know, the cars, the bank accounts, the, the buildings, all those things, seeing that it's eventually going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be? We ought to be living a holy life, a life that is going to be investing into that which will last. Well, the earth won't last. The earth is going to be destroyed. And this destruction happens right before this great white throne judgment. The heaven and the earth, they're all of a sudden, they're dissolved. They're fleeing away. They're just gone. Is it, is it the idea that, remember in Colossians it says Jesus is not only creator, but he also, by him all things consist? The idea that he holds everything together? Is it that all of a sudden Jesus releases and we have an atomic explosion like never seen before with the fervent heat and everything is dissolved and it's all gone? That, that could be the case. I, I don't know all the details of it, but I do know what the author is getting at. The author is saying judgment day is coming. There is going to be a judgment day. Whether or not people want to accept this reality, the reality is God says there is a judgment day, a day of reckoning. And when that happens, there will be no place for people to hide. Do you remember during the the tribulation period, people knowing that God is sending some of these plagues from the heaven, they will run into the caves and into the mountains to get away from the judgment? There's no more caves. There's no more mountains. You know, we play hide-and-go-seek here in the building at times. And kids get into some of these really neat spots. You know, crawl underneath the pews in the balcony. Get way far back in them. Can't be seen. There's going to be no pews. Everybody will, who stands in this judgment, they, they're going to be, everything's open. Everything is seen. No hiding. Now, the judge is going to be God Almighty. You, you figured that out already. In fact, you look at verse 12, and it says God is the judge. This fits what the Bible has been saying all through. I just selected a few verses. We go back to the book of Psalms where it talks about the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared a throne for judgment. He shall judge the world. Another psalm. The heavens declare his righteousness for God is going to be the judge. Daniel describes this future event and he says, I beheld until the thrones were cast down, the earthly thrones, and the ancient of day did sit whose garment is white as snow, the hair on his head like pure wool. In 10,000 times 10,000 is going to be before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. We, we read elsewhere, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world. We read in, in the Hebrews, the general assembly in the church which are written in heaven that God is the judge of all. Repeatedly, God is the judge, but Jesus said he's going to judge. We read that the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, and has given him authority to execute judgment, also because he is the Son of Man. We read, I charge you before the God and the Lord Jesus, who shall judge the quick and the dead. By the way, the word quick has the idea of those resurrected, those brought back to life. Same thing shows up in Acts. Yeah, Jesus commanded us to preach, the apostle said, and the people to testify that he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the resurrected and the dead. Because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who is ordained. There is no contradiction in scripture. Okay, when it says God is the judge and says Jesus has judged, no contradiction because 
yeah, they're the, they're the Trinity, three in one. And the fact that God is judging through His Son. No contradiction. Now what is really challenging is this thinking this through. Somebody might say at that judgment day standing before God Jesus, somebody might want to claim, but you don't know how bad it was at being a person. It's easy for you sitting there, you're perfect. You don't know what we people went through because of our temptations to be giving in to sin. You have no idea. You can't judge me fairly. Ha ha. Can't say that to Jesus because Jesus was a man tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So nobody's going to be able to make, it, make a claim you don't understand how hard it is to resist evil. Jesus did. He went through it. And so in this judgment of, by Jesus Christ nobody's going to fool them. Nobody can hide. There's no place to hide. Then in other words this is saying that there's a day where mankind as a whole is going to be giving an account to God Almighty. At least a major portion of mankind. And so this judgment isn't something you can fool people. Now James Barry was a surgeon, second rank in all the British army during the 1800s. He fooled people. Hey, he, was, he was living in a time period where schools were very limited. Medical doctors were very limited. The military was very limited. But he hid in such a way that he was able to get into the university, get into the military, and become a doctor, a surgeon. And he hid a fact about himself through his entire life that was revealed when he died, and they found out that he wasn't a he. Sounds like modern day, doesn't it? <laughs> but actually, he hid his entire his gender hid for his entire career, but it came out. There's a, there's a story that came out a number of years ago about a couple that were from Chicago. The guy was an ENT, ear, nose, and throat specialist surgeon. His wife was studying to be a psychiatrist. They had gotten married. He wowed her, wooed her, just was just spending all kinds of things. And so comes her 30th birthday, and he says, hey, let's rent a yacht. Let's go for two weeks to the Mediterranean. You know, everybody does that for their 30th birthday. And so they got the yacht, they went to the Mediterranean, they're cruising for a while, and he said that tomorrow's being, now it is your birthday, tomorrow I'm going to get something special for you. And so, you know, she was a you know, great, great, great. She woke up that morning and he was gone. Oh, he must have already gone to shore, he's looking for something. But then as the day went by, he still isn't come back, he isn't coming back, he isn't coming back. All night hasn't come back. She, the captain of the ship, thinking, He's, you know, he got mugged, he got killed. You know, somebody knew that he had the money and he was buying something. And uh, then it found out you know, he's, he, nobody could find him. There was no mugging. There was no nothing. But the, the captain came and said, hey, by the way, before your husband left, he told me to give this envelope to you in a couple days. She opened it and it was $2,000. $2,000 with the idea that you're on your own. She had to get herself back to the States and settled everything. And when she got back to the state, she found out that, you know, somebody with her husband's, all his knowledge was taking funds out of the bank account. Somebody was taking funds out of the business account. Somebody was, this guy had a pretty good account. He made for out of profit $200,000 a week. I'm, I think you could live on that, okay? $200,000 a week. And what had happened is in his doctoring business, he was being charged with bilking the insurance companies of $13 million. And patients were filing suit that never had a surgery that they claimed, had bogus surgeries. This guy was a con. This guy had convinced his wife he was real, and now he was on the lam. And for several years he was on the run. She hired detectives, they could never find him. The FBI got involved because of all the health care fraud. They couldn't find him. So after several years, the FBI came to the wife and said, hey, listen, we can't tra track him down. We have no idea. He has disappeared in the world. And he's hidden. Nobody can find him. And they said, we have a suggestion for you. Maybe you should air your story on America's Most Wanted. It went on the air. And when it was on the air, some gal in France 
decided, her, her cousin called her and said, you should watch this certain episode. Because she was engaged to a guy. And so she watched the episode and realized that her fiancé was actually this guy, Mark Weinberger, going by another alias. And he was living in a tent at the bottom of the Alps, a survivalist. Well, then she went to report him to authorities. He got back in the United States, and they charged him with 224 accounts of fraud. And, uh, you know, you can hide for a while, but you can't hide from God. You can hide from people, but you won't hide from God. And you won't trick God. God will know you. God knows even your most secret thoughts you might go by an alias now. You might have a story that you're giving others. You won't be able to give it to God. It's going to be a judge who is going to be there knowing everything. Now, who are the judged? This is, this is where it gets a little bit more difficult. <clears throat> it says in the text, I saw the dead. Okay, remember that in the beginning of the chapter, in verses 5 and 6, there was people who had died earlier, but they were resurrected. All of those from during the tribulation period. And he called those people who were resurrected, who entered into the kingdom, he called them part of the first resurrection. That is, scriptures is describing the saints who were from the Old Testament, the New Testament era, the tribulation. This is the same group that in chapter 20, verse 6, says they were all part of the first resurrection. Or, as Jesus said, they were the ones resurrected of life or to life. Or as Daniel says, those who awake to everlasting life. Or as Corinthians write, those who belong to Jesus Christ. Those were all the individuals who are part of the first resurrection. They are not part of the dead. They have already been made alive prior to this moment. So in this text, when it's talking about the dead, it's talking about all the unsaved from throughout history. Those who never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who may have gone to church, those who were part of a denomination, but they never put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. These are the people that Jesus said they are the ones that are going to be resurrected unto damnation. These are what Daniel says, they will wake to everlasting contempt. These are the resurrection of the dead or those who will experience the second death, that is, separation from God forever and ever. Death is separation of body, soul, or separation from God. And so he's talking about these individuals, all the unsaved. And he says the small and the great, that, that isn't size proportion, you know, the overweight and the thin. That's not what he's talking about. The small and the great are those who are really popular, those that nobody noticed. Those who were celebrities, those who couldn't play a role even if you know, it was cast upon them and their life depended upon them. Those who were in authority. You know, the, the leaders who think at times, it wouldn't happen in the United States, but somewhere else in the world there's people who are in authority that think they're untouchables. And those who are, you know, they're... They can't jaywalk without getting a ticket. These are the people who are rich. These are the people who are poor. These are the masters. These are the slaves. Everyone who throughout history, everyone who we, what the Bible would say are unbelievers, they're part of this dead. They're part of this group. And he says the sea gave up the dead. And again, if you and I step back in history, let's go back to what they thought when they talked about the sea. To you and I, the sea is captivating, it's neat, it's, it's got thrills to it. But in ancient world, ancient Near East time, sea was, was something that was scary, something that was intimidating. Because if you go too far offshore, you're going to fall off the edge of the world. Or you'll be eaten by all those creatures. And so if somebody went to sea and they were lost, there was no recovery like there is in modern day. There's no, let's go figure it out. Let's go down to the bottom of the sea. Let's check out the Titanic. Let's look in all the things. They didn't do that back then. The sea was a place that was extremely intimidating. And when somebody was lost at sea, they were lost. And so he's saying, even this area that scares us, that is, that is remote, it's going to give up the dead, the bodies that died. They're going to be resurrected, even out of the sea. 
They won't be lost forever. They're going to come to judgment day. And he says even death, even hell itself are going to give up and all the souls will be gathered and their, their physical bodies will be resurrected and put back together. And they're going to stand at this judgment. The point is this. All unbelievers will be judged at this point. The, the idea is every one of them, and that could be you. If you are an unbeliever, I didn't say if you don't go to church. You may come to church week after week. We, we have people who come on a regular basis who have grown up here and heard, but their response is when they reach a certain age or whatever, they may say, I don't believe. I don't believe there's a God. Well, friend, you're going to stand before him one day. Whether you believe it or not, you're going to stand before him. He's talked about the idea there's no exceptions, there's no escape. There's no place to hide. Even those who are in hell right now, their, their souls are going to be released from it, united with their resurrected bodies that may have decomposed hundreds of years ago, but God who created out of the dirt can recreate those bodies, put them back together. They're going to get a reprieve out of hell, and they'll stand before God at this great judgment. You know, and you say, well, are they getting out of hell because they're given a second chance? Are they getting out of hell for a little bit so that they, you know, there might be a, a reprieve? No. Do you know that old saying, out of the frying pan? Yeah, this is it. This is the literal situation. But this is their judgment day. This is when they get an opportunity to reckon before God. And so what happens here is all these people. And again, somebody says, I don't believe in a God. You will. And, and whether or not you believe in a God, God has determined there's a judgment day. You say, but, but you know, it won't happen to me because I believe in a God. Um, let, me, let me point something out. Just believing there is a God is not enough to getting into heaven. The devil also believes in a God, but he trembles. That's not enough to get him out of hell. So this judgment is just a tremendous judgment, and it, it will bring about a predicted passage of Scripture. Do you remember in Philippians where it talks about Jesus Christ, who is in the form of God, thought it not something he could keep to himself to maintain and hold his godness, but he also came in the form of man. And then he died. He was obedient unto death. And after that, he was resurrected. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Then it goes on and says, Wherefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, given him a name which is above every name. Do you remember the rest? That he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. And what else will everybody confess? says, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. This is the day. Great white throne judgment is the day that it's happening. And so the dead is, uh, it includes all the unbelievers. Now you might say, let, let's make this really clear. You're here, you said, but I have called upon Christ to be my personal Savior. I have asked him to forgive me is there any chance that I'm going to be at this judgment? Is there, any, is there any possibility that I might be here? If you have truly done what the Scripture says, if you have truly repented of your sin and asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, then this is for you. Let's eliminate any fears or any, any apprehensions. Verily, verily, Jesus said, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. He says, but it's passed from death to life. Romans was written to those of us who are believers. There is therefore no condemnation. None. We don't have to fear this great white throne. This isn't a time where we're going to be examined and then maybe end up in hell. No. If we're a true believer, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He goes on in the passage and he asks, who shall separate us from the love of God? And the next question, who is he that condemns? Who is he that judges us? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. Jesus isn't condemning us, but he's doing what for us? making intercession. 
And that's why he concludes the chapter, who shall separate us from the love of God? I am persuaded, neither death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall, what? Be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, think this through. Especially as we talk about the judgment. The judgment here in this text is very much like an old ancient world courtroom. Not American. Who does the judging in America? One of, one of the Bill of Rights. We're supposed to be judged by our peers. Not in the ancient world. That's an American thing. In the ancient world, who usually did the judging? Who was the jury? The judge. Who, who, had, who was the person who was judging Jesus and also had the right to either condemn Jesus or release him? It was Pilate. It was Pilate, right? The human guy. Herod would have had the authority. The, the judge and the jury were one. That's what's happening here. God is the judge and the jury, all in one. And what happens here is this God is going to make a judgment, just, uh, judgment at this time. His judgment will be just. Fair might be the word I'm going to tongue-in-cheek throw in here. Why, why do we know, how do we know that God will be just and right in his judgment. <laughs> the Almighty, he is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness he will never violate. We read about him, he's the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. So in this judgment, God is the judge, Jesus God is the judge. It is going to be a just judgment. There's not going to be an opportunity to give a defense that is going to get you off the hook. There's not going to be an opportunity to make an appeal. Who do you make an appeal to? God's the highest authority. So what judgment is taking place is just a, is, whoa, you've got to make sure that you're ready beforehand. Now in this court scene that we read in Revelation 20, there's three factors there. There's the evidence that's presented, there is the verdict that's going to be made, and then there's the sentencing. They're all here in this text. The evidence that's going to be presented for those who are being judged, it says those things which are written in the books. Not just once, but it says it twice. Okay. Now did you notice the one word is plural. There is more than one book God is going to use at this judgment. And he says that this one, the one book he's going to look at is the book of life. Okay, now the book of life, I'll talk about more about this evening, but just to make it a simple thing this morning, it's a registry of all those who at some time in their life put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They did exactly what the Bible calls of being born again, being converted, being saved, all the same thing with different terms. And so those who are born again, their names are in this book of life, and that means if you did not accept Christ, you did not get born again, your name's not in this book. If your name's not in this book, okay, then what happens is you're cast in the lake of fire. That's what the text teaches. That's why I'm apprehensive to teach it. Because this isn't fun. This isn't any exciting news. This isn't uplifting news. This is scary stuff. But this is real. And so when you look at this and go, okay, this is... This is you know, really bad. But you might be sitting here, you might be listening, and you say, I don't want to repent. I don't want to make Jesus my Savior. I don't think I'm that bad. I think that come judgment day, my good will outweigh my bad. And I don't want to believe in all that Jesus said. In fact, I think there should be multiple ways to get into heaven, not just Jesus. And I think I'm going to trust myself. I go to church, I give money, I'm a nice guy, I'm in the community, you know, I, I don't do the wicked things that others do. Or you say, hey, I'm trusting in my church. I got baptized, I joined a church, they're going to get me into heaven. Or, or you might be thinking this, I want to live my own life. I don't want to live the way that Jesus said. I, I want to be my own boss of my own life. Have you ever heard any of these comments from individuals? Maybe, maybe I should ask this. Did you ever use any of these excuses before? All I can say to you is warn you from this text and say, ouch. Watch what he says to you. Who claim that you know, this isn't such a serious thing. 
He goes on and he says that there is also going to be not only the book of life, but he's going to judge your works according to the books. Not just if your name. Now, the key, the key thing is, is your name in the book of life? That's the key one. But there's also, twice here, presented with the idea that God is keeping a thorough record of your deeds. Each and every one of us, there's, a, there's this record being kept in heaven uh, about, about things like what? What we ever said. I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account in the day of judgment. Jesus is having all speech recorded in books. Jesus is having thoughts recorded in books. The God who searches out and knows the thoughts. Jesus is having a book of everything that is done in your life. That includes, shall bring into work, into every work, into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or bad. There's a record. There, there's a record that he says he'll reward everyone according to his works. He goes on, he says in scriptures that it includes even the things nobody else knows about. The words that you have never said to other people out loud or maybe just to a couple. Maybe, maybe the thoughts that you don't want anybody to know how you thought about somebody or how you, how you were attracted to somebody in an illicit way. He says, there is nothing covered that should not be revealed, neither hid that should not be known. Whatsoever you have spoken in darkness, you know, the gossiping crowd, shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the closet shall be proclaimed in the housetops. He goes on and he says this, for nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be made known or come abroad. Paul wrote, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to his gospel, according to the teachings, the standards of God's word. Whoa! Really? Those things that I said that I wish I hadn't said, there's a record of them? The thoughts that I don't want anybody else to know about. There's a record of them? Yeah. And God's going to use this. So why, why does God bring up these things? If, if it is the only thing that really is most important is, is your name written in the book of life. Why does he still do these, these other works? Why does he bring them up? Several reasons. Several reasons that are very important. Number one is this. Okay, in bringing up these works, what's done in secret, it'll serve as proof that those individuals who stand at this judgment have never gotten born again. It'll serve as proof. The reason I say that is because Jesus predicted that at judgment day, some will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied and done good works in your name. And Jesus said, I will respond unto them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never. So people will claim, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, I, I believed in you, I went to church, but the reality is, what does it profit my brethren? Even though a man says he has faith and he doesn't have works to prove it. So he went to church on Sunday and sang, had a Bible, but the rest of the week he lived for himself, did his own thing. There wasn't a description of holiness in their life or compassion in their life or forgiveness in their life. And he'll say, you never truly were born again. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. Because the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's what? He's changed. He's a new creature. Jesus warned about that. He said, you'll know them by their fruits. He went on to say, "For your, by your words you shall be justified if your words are revealing a change in your heart or you're going to be condemned. So one of the things these works will do is when people stand before God Almighty and all of a sudden, can you imagine what this would be like? Can you imagine if this were you and your works, all your words you ever said were all of a sudden revealed and all of a sudden we're declared openly. Would you feel guilty? Okay, I'm going to answer for me. 
oh, absolutely, I'd be so ashamed, so embarrassed by the thoughts and the things that I don't want anybody else to know about, that I blew it here or blew it there. But all of a sudden, it's going to be revealed to those people standing at that judgment. And it'll be evidence against them that you were never a true believer. You never got born again. In fact, it's going to serve as evidence that they violated God's law, that they, that they disobeyed God. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I do most of the things. I do lots of things really good. I'm sure you do. Lots of good things. I might slip up once in a while. Can I remind you of a story of a man that came to Jesus and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, what do you think you need to do? I'll keep all the commandments. And Jesus said, that's good. You're close. And this guy was a real moral guy. But he was also, he had a lot of money. And Jesus said, you should give that all away. And it wasn't because money is bad. But in that man's life, what was his God? Yeah, and so Jesus said, give it away. It was a test. And the guy went away sad. Because Jesus was trying to point out to that man this principle. If you keep the whole law, you are so good, you are so, so you know, wonderful, and you get awards and you get commendations and everybody just loves you, but if you, you violate the law in one point, God's law, you're a lawbreaker. That, that's the idea. If, if you're perfect in every area, but you sin just once, you're a sinner. And what is the wages of sin? This is going to prove it. This, he's going to demonstrate this. He's going to make it clear. I, I could demonstrate it this way. We got, we got Ten Commandments that most all of you know. You memorized it in Sunday school or sometime. Some of us didn't, but you did. And we know that that's only ten. There are hundreds of commands in the Old Testament. But these are ten of the basic moral principles that God laid out. And Jesus said, if you violate them in your mind, if you not just commit murder, but if you think bad, harmful, angry thoughts towards somebody, if not just commit the act of adultery, but if you even you know, really contemplate it and meditate on it and whew, you know, go through your mind, play act it out, he says, you're an adulterer. And so when you look at that and you say, okay, how many of us have perfectly kept the Ten Commandments? Oh, well, that's just a, well, it says, obey mom and dad. Dare any of you teens, I dare you to say, I've never disobeyed. Okay. You just lied. Okay. <laughs> the, how many of us have ever used the name of the Lord in vain? How many of us have ever put something in front of God? How many of us have ever taken something that didn't belong to us or we coveted something that belonged to somebody else or we said a lie, a falsehood, a gossiping thing or something exaggerated about another person? We're all guilty. We all stand guilty before God in this situation. None of us, for there is none righteous, no, not one. Which this is, this is a scary thing then. And you go, well then... If, if there's a record being kept and one day this record's going to be opened, th this is me. You guys probably didn't think, wouldn't think this way, but this is me. I'm just as guilty as a lot of those people that are going to be standing there. My record isn't any better than a lot of those people. I've got garbage in my life. I've got offenses against God. I had, I had disobeyed my parents. Woohoo! Um, you know, I had done things that are in secret, I don't want no one, then how do I get out of this? If it's a fair judgment, how do I get out of it? And some of them don't. Because of a message we, um, uh, a verse that we talked about about a year ago. Do you remember back in the book of Colossians when we did this passage? It talks about what Jesus has done for those who are born again having blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances. I pointed out to you, these are the exact same slides from that series. I pointed out to you that what he's talking about, handwriting is in debt cards, IOUs, penalties or fines with interest that you got to pay. And he says in that text that there's a record being kept, a handwriting being kept of, of 
violating ordinances. The ordinances is what we just talked about. The Ten Commandments and all the other moral codes of God. That there was a record being kept. We already mentioned that. There's a record being kept. There's books being kept. God had a record on you who are born again. God had your record and that record was contrary to you. It was, if it would be opened and revealed you, it's against you. It would shame you. It would, it would humble us. It would just absolutely devastate us that we did that. We said that. Oh no. Yeah. And he said it was very severe. But the text talks about, but Christ. This is so cool. But Christ. Okay? If we can illustrate this way, and this is the way we did it here a year ago, that if we had other gods, we had graven images, if we cussed or used the Lord's name, disobeyed our parents, all these are our fines against us. What we owe for our sins against God. Didn't steal, false accounts, and all of them, and then there's added to it, we did it over and over and over and over, and all of a sudden, there's an enormous amount of indebtedness that we would owe to God. But the passage goes on, he took it out of the way. It literally means he at one time erased it, purged it, cleansed it, and continues to do so, having nailed it to his cross. The reason that we aren't standing before God in that future with our books open, with all of our garbage, God has cleansed our books. Praise God! And your sins and your iniquities will I remember Thank you, Jesus. And so here in this text, he's talking about those who never had a cleansing of their record. They refused to have Jesus become their Savior to cleanse their record. He's going to say, guilty. You're guilty. And all of this proves it. You're guilty. And not only that, but when he pronounces guilty, there's going to be a punishment. There is degrees of punishment in hell, in the lake of fire. Let me see if I can throw it. Is jail a good place or a bad place? I mean, most of us aren't going to say, hey, I'm, this afternoon I want to be put in jail. Okay. Once somebody goes to jail, is there different levels of punishment within jail? Yes. Okay, same thing when somebody goes to the lake of fire. It's all bad, but there's degrees of punishment. Chorazin and Bethsaida didn't have the witness of the miracles of Jesus. He's, or they did, excuse me. They had the witness. He says, it's going to be worse for you than those areas that never saw my witness when I was on earth. Okay? He says this about the Pharisees. He says, you're going to have greater damnation because you misled people than the people who are following you. He said this about servants in a parable, that some will be beaten with few, some beaten with many stripes. I don't know how this works. Hell is bad. It's a horrible place. How does it get any worse than just being in hell? I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that this is where the guilty who have never had their record purged because they refused to let Jesus do it. They wanted to do it on their own. They didn't think that they were a sinner that bad. They're going to be declared guilty and they're going to end up in the lake of fire which he describes as being the second death separated from God forever and ever. And it's horrible. It's awful. It's a, it's a, some, some have asked, do you believe that it is a literal place of fire? I have no reason not to. 20 times Jesus used the word fire to describe hell. Even if it isn't literal physical fire, which I think it is. Even if it isn't, then all that means is the writer was trying to describe it with words that he could try to get across how bad it is. In other words, it's worse than, than the, the, the fire. It's bad. It's bad. Do, do any of you remember from history? You know, there used to be a time they taught history. Okay? Real history. You probably heard about the Chicago fire. Yes? No? Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Yes, kicking over. Yeah, okay. And that's not true, but... Um, anyway, that same day there was another fire. It's the, Pati uh, the Peshtigo fires in Wisconsin. North of Chicago, it had been dry region. All of a sudden, when the fire started in Chicago, it also there was a fire up there from the storms. And it covered huge amounts of acreage. 
They don't know how many people died. Chicago fire was 200 and some uh, people that died. In this fire, they think maybe up to 2,400 people. And it, it, they don't know because they couldn't find remains. But this came through, and it was a horrible situation, horrible, horrible, horrible situation. In fact, I have notes from the Wisconsin State Legislature in describing some of what this fire was like afterwards. They have records and there are people saying they thought it was Judgment Day. Fire coming down, and as the fire was building, it created its own vortex, and it created cyclonic action, sucking the oxygen. For instance, here's true accounts of what happened to some people. One young woman's long hair simply started to burn because of the intense heat. A young man jumped into a water trough to escape the flames and was boiled alive. A group of people who huddled inside one of the town's brick buildings were literally baked alive. A missionary worker reported seeing dozens and dozens and dozens of people fleeing from the fire. They ran onto a wooden bridge, but the crowds came from both sides. The bridge started on fire, and he estimated over 300 people perished by either being burned or when the bridge collapsed, they drowned. People who ran to the fire breaks, the clearings, were burned alive by the jumping fire and heat. The very sands in the street were vitrified, turned into glass. Many people uh, perished, of whom we don't have a single evidence because they turned to sand. That is America's worst fire. The lake of fire is worse. The lake of fire is worse. Why would anybody risk it? But you might be sitting here and saying, you might be listening and saying, how could a loving God do that? Uh, number one, who are we to question God? He's the judge, not us. But let me set the record straight. God never intended for people to end up in hell. He made hell for Satan, not for you. God never intended for you to end up there he is willing that you would not perish but come to everlasting life. God so cares for you. He had Jesus Christ come from heaven and Jesus Christ die and experience this hell in your place. That's how much he loves you. And then what he did is not only give a way of escape through Jesus Christ who will cleanse your record completely and keep it cleansed. But as well, he provides warning after warning, like this moment. He gives invitation after invitation, like we will in the next moment, for you to respond and to take care of this. So you don't stand before God at this judgment. But get this fact. He loves you so much, he will not force you. He will not force you into believing on him and calling upon him as Savior. He loves you. If he forced you into belief, then you would say it wasn't fair that he made you believe. So, God gives you free will. You choose. It's up to you. You either accept his offer of total cleansing or you refuse it. And if you refuse it, this is what you get. It's your choice. The reality is simple. God doesn't send people to hell. You choose to go there. What will you choose? What will you choose? Now, bringing it all together, let's, let's just do our final thoughts. Number one, this judgment is real. Number two, this is your future unless you repent and turn to Christ. So what's it going to be? you going to have a future where Jesus welcomes you into heaven or are you going to have a future where he's your judge and you're condemned by your own choice? your own works. We are going to give you that opportunity to repent, to, to talk with somebody, to find out from the Bible, what do you need to pray? What do you need to do? How do I do? What, what do I do? We have got men, ladies, headed over to this door right now. They will be there while I continue yammering for a few moments and then praying. And they'll be available for you. Feel free to get up, go over there, talk with them in private. They'll take you down the hall where there's rooms. Talk with them. You don't join our church. You make no commitment to us, but you find out what about your eternal destiny. How do I avoid this great white throne judgment? It's up to you. I can't do anymore. We can't do anymore. We would love to grab you and shake you and say, get saved right now. We can't. It's your choice. This is your opportunity. 
feel free to get up, go and talk with them. Or when I pray, get up and go and talk with them. They'll gladly show you. Let me make this final statement. This is your family's future. Your classmates' future. Your co-workers' future. Your kids, your grandkids, this is their future if they don't get born again. You have got to do something to help them, to warn them. You have got to give them some, the, the information, but the fact is they cannot believe if they don't hear about Jesus. Tell them about the one who has their name in the book of life if they get born again, who purges their accounts for good and forever. Let them know. Clear that track rack today. Go and talk to your friends. Go and invite people to your house. Do a Bible study. Warn them. Help them. Make a difference for their eternity. This is real. This is serious. It's not fun. It's not exciting. But it should be motivating that we act and help others avoid this great white throne judgment. Father, for any here today who are not born again, who do not know of their eternal destiny, I pray that even right now they would have the gumption, the boldness, the fear, and at the same moment the bravery to go and talk to one of these folks standing nearby. I pray, Father, that you would please help everyone who's here in this room, those listening, who are not born again, to be motivated to get out of complacency and realize this is the future for many individuals if we don't warn them. Help us by your, by your spirit to say the right words, to be compassionate, to be motivated to share the gospel, to be compelled to share our belief in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in knowledge of your word, but then also in doing what it requires us to do, our part. Use this in the days ahead, if people view this later on, to bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. Thank you for the attentiveness of these good folk. Thank you for their kindness in listening to this scary, horrible message. Thank you. Thank you most of all, Father, that our books have been white cleaned. Thank you for giving us grace. Thank you for purging my record. Thank you for putting my name in the book of life. Thank you that we know we aren't going to stand there one day at this great white throne judgment. Thank you, Jesus, for saving our souls. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Tonight we'll follow up about that book of life. Thanks.